God has a plan. That's really good news in these days as we look at Nigeria, Belarus, Black Lives Matter, COVID, killer hornets. I mean, we want to hear that God has a plan, that he knows what's going on, that this is all going somewhere. God has a plan. Right now at Pillar, what we're doing is we're looking at God's big story, the one true story of the whole world, and we're asking the question, what's our place in God's great story? Or putting it another way, what's our place in God's plan? So come with me today. Come with me and let's take a look at God's plan. See what's happening there. God's plan. A little background for us this morning. God creates the world. It is amazing, beautiful, wonderful. It is so overwhelming, it hurts to look at it. And into that amazing, overwhelming world, God puts Adam and Eve. And says to them, what I want you to do is I want you to uncover the wonders of my creation. Be a co-creator with me. Create music and gardens. Create government and politics. Create all of these amazing things that bring glory to me and are good for people and bring good for the creation. Adam and Eve decide they don't want the job. They listen to the destroyer, to the deceiver. And when they do, they bring the whole creation down with them. We're told in Genesis chapter 3 that God curses the ground because of them. In fact, we track it out from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, five times we hear the word curse. The ground is cursed, relationships are cursed, there's a curse that comes with an immoral life, there's curse all over the place. And in the middle of it, God finally has enough, and he says, I'm going to try to start over. And he sends a flood to cleanse the earth. And after the flood is done, we think to ourselves, well, maybe now, maybe now there's some hope. Again, the call goes out to Noah to go out into all the world and and spread all throughout the world, doing these amazing things, bringing good for the creation, good for people, and glory to God. And it looks like there might be hope. But then, on the plain of Shinar, a place that many of you probably know better as Babylon, they stop. They stop doing what they're supposed to do, and they come together, and they start to build a tower, a ziggurat, really. And a ziggurat has the purpose of getting to heaven so you can control God. God won't have it. And so he confuses their language and sends them off in all different directions, so finally they're going to do what God wants them to do, whether they want to do it or not. But the problem is that he sends them out in all these different directions. He sends out a rebellious arrogant, cantankerous bunch of people who are supposed to bring his word and his hope to the world. So God's got to do something. So he steps in and he moves his plan forward. He takes Abram and Sarai and says to them, I'm going to use you, Abram and Sarai, who will become Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to use you to be the people who start a new nation that bring blessing to the world, that kill off the curse and bring blessing. By the way, as he makes that call in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, in three short verses we hear the word blessing five times. The curse is going to be reversed. Blessing is going to come. But wait for just a second. Abram, Sarai, 
Abraham, Sarah. Here's the thing. They're useless old people. Sarah's barren, like the land is barren, like the world is barren after they build the tower at Shinar. They're two useless old people. They're barren. They can't even have kids. But here's another thing about them. Not only are they barren, you know where they come from? Babylon. They come from the very heart of the rebellion that was against God. And Sarai's name tells us something else. It tells us that she worshiped the moon god. So God says, I've got this plan. I'm going to take these two old people who are barren, who come from the very center of the rebellion, who worship the moon god, and I'm going to use them to bring blessing to the world. You can almost hear heaven gasp and say, what are you thinking? How about maybe a young couple that could have kids? Or at least maybe this, how about somebody who doesn't worship the moon? God has a plan. So take Abraham and Sarai and put them in the back of your mind for a moment. And we're going to jump forward around a thousand years. And it's going to be a time of David, the people of Israel in the land. David is their king. And David's been looking around and he's been saying, you know, God's been doing some really great things for me. And I want to do something for God. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to build a house for God. And David tells his plan to Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet says, David, that's really great. Go for it. But God has a different plan. God is in the house today. Listen to the very words of God from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the word of the Lord came to Nathan at night. Go say to my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Will you build a house for me to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house since my people left the land of Egypt. Wherever they went, I dwelt in a tent. And wherever they went, did I ever say to any of the leaders that I appointed over them, build me a house of cedar? Say to my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will build you a house. I, who took you out of the pasture, overseeing the flocks, and appointed you as ruler over my people. I, who have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies before you, I will make your name great, just like the names of the greatest men in all the world, and I will plant my people Israel in the land so that they will no longer suffer distress. Wicked people will no longer oppress them as they have from the beginning of rulers until now. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will establish your house. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be forever. Nathan took all these words to David. And David went and sat before the Lord. And he said, O sovereign Lord, who am I and what is my family that you have brought me this far? 
These are the very words of God. Sovereign Lord, who am I? And what is my family? So David's family. Take Abraham and Sarah out of the back of your mind, bring them to the front. Abraham's family are these two useless old people who are barren, who come from the very center of the rebellion and worship the moon god. That's his family. And more. Abraham and Sarah, they have a son by the name of Isaac. Now, Isaac is this guy who, for some reason, is extremely small-minded. He can never figure out God's big plan. And he also always seems to be stepping in ways to try to thwart the plan from even happening. So what's God going to do? Well, God basically says, Isaac, I'm going to put you to the side. You aren't doing what I need done. So I'm going to take your wife, Rebecca. I'm going to take a woman. And I'm going to make it so that she moves my plan forward. If you read through the book of Genesis and Rebecca's story, it's really this amazing thing because God speaks to Rebecca like God spoke to Abraham. God takes words and applies them to Rebecca that have been applied never to Isaac, but applies them to Rebecca. It is this amazing thing where God says, I'm going to take this woman, I'm going to speak to her, and I'm going to use her. A commentator talks about this and says this about Rebecca. She asks God what is going on, and God tells her that two nations are in her womb and that the older is going to serve the younger. The younger who will be Jacob is to be the one who carries on the promise, who lives under the blessing in the next generation. Rebecca takes this knowledge and uses it to make sure that God's work is done that Jacob receives the blessing, even if it means deceiving her old and blind husband. Indeed, his blindness shows that he can't see what has to happen. Rebecca, however, knows what needs to happen, and she's willing to risk it all to make it happen. She tells the fearful Jacob that if, he that if it all blows up, that the curse will be on her, which means she will allow herself to be put out of the family, be exiled, lose it all, so that the promise can be given and he can go forward. What is my family? Two useless old people that God makes useful. A woman who in the ancient Near East who should not have any kind of leadership role at all, taking a leadership role. And then there's Jacob. Jacob, second choice of his father. You don't want to be second choice in the ancient Near East but he's the second choice of his father. Not only that, he's not by any stretch of the imagination a man's man. His brother, Esau, he's the guy. He's the alpha male. He's the big hairy guy who goes out hunting. What does Jacob do? He stays at home and makes stew. He's in the kitchen. And then Jacob has a son, 12 of them actually, but one of them is Judah, who's a descendant or a, a of, uh, he is, belongs to uh, the line of David. And Judah sells his brother into captivity, sleeps with his daughter-in-law, believing that she's a prostitute. That's the family. That's David's family. That's the family who he says, what is my family? And you go, yeah, what is your family? Two useless old people, a woman who is a leader, a guy who stays in the kitchen. 
and somebody who sells his brother into slavery? That's the family? So slide forward just a little bit with me to the book of Ruth, where we find more of David's family. There we find Naomi. And Naomi is a woman who is angry and ticked off and bitter towards God. Her life has been hard. Her life has been difficult. And she believes without a doubt that God is the source of her problem. And so when she returns to her town, she says to her town, don't call me Naomi anymore. Let me be called Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. Alongside of her is a woman by the name of Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Ruth, who is an alien, a stranger, an outsider, but who will eventually be in the line of David and who will bring hope and gladness back to Nomai. That's the family. Well, one other person in the family we should mention is somebody by the name of Rahab. She's too part of the family, and she's a prostitute. That's the family. What is my family? Well, your family is a couple of useless old people, a woman who shouldn't have leadership, a guy who hangs out in the kitchen, a woman who's ticked off at God, a brother who sells his brother into slavery, and two outsiders, aliens, strangers, who bring some hope. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. It's about Jesus and his family. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the ones who makes, who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children that God has given me. As it turns out, every one of us who has said, I believe in Jesus Christ, the one who has taken away my sins on the cross and made me part of his peaceable kingdom, Every one of us who has said that in our hearts are part of the family, are part of this family that David talks about, this family that has two useless old people, this family that has aliens and strangers and foreigners as part of the family. It is the family that we are a part of. And as we hear those words, what is my family? It rings back to us to ask the question, what is my family? Who's supposed to be in my family? What is my family supposed to look like? Well, it's supposed to look like old people. It's supposed to look like useless people who have been made useful by God. It's supposed to look like people who are said, you could never lead from a cultural place, but in this family, they get to lead and actually do amazing things. It looks like a place where those who are second class and second hand are actually brought to the front and serve the kingdom of God. It looks like people who are bitter and angry who find a place that can heal them and bring them hope. It looks like a place where those actually who have hurt the family can find healing and new life. It looks like a place where aliens and strangers and outsiders are brought in, recognizing that it's just possible they can do more than those who are inside right now. And it raises the question 
When we ask, who is my family? What is my family? It raises the question, who's not at the table right now? Who should be at the table? Who should be part of the family? But they're not. Whose voices should we be listening to, but we don't? Who should be part of the family? When we hear, what is my family, we hear, who is my family, and who should be part of the family? And we recognize that we all have a call in this to make sure that all the seats at the table are filled. All the people who are supposed to be here are part of the family, are at the table. I love how a rabbi talks about this. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, in his book, Lessons in Leadership, says this, God gave us freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. God teaches us what we ought to do, but he does not do it for us. He acts through us, not to us. His is the voice that tells us, as he told Cain when he committed his crime, that we can resist the evil within us as well as the evil that surrounds us. The responsible life is a life that responds. The Hebrew word for responsibility is achrut. It comes from the word acher, which means other. Our other is God himself, calling us to use the freedom he gave us to make the world more like the world that ought to be. We're called to make sure the right people, all the people that are supposed to be at the table are at the table. We're called to ask, who's not at the table? Who have we kept from being at the table? And more than that, as we invite people to the table, we invite them recognizing that we're not sitting on the inside saying, oh, here we are. Aren't we amazing? Aren't we wonderful? Please, come on in. No, we come as those who recognize that we are here by grace that we've been rescued by God and brought into the family by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so as we bring others in, we come and bring them in as a picture of a community of grace that welcomes them, that loves them, that cares for them by grace. I like how one person put this. They said, as vibrant communities of Jesus the King, we join his mission of reclaiming the brokenness of his people the world is his kingdom, and restoring a shattered creation. We discover the power and wisdom for this life by walking humbly with God and living the wonder of his rescue and restoration of us. We live this life in the full knowledge of our own brokenness. What's our family like? It's like all of these things of David's family. The old the useless that become useful, those that are outside are brought in. It's that family. See, God has a plan. God's plan is to bring blessing to the world, but as God brings blessing to the world, what he does is this. He says, I'm going to bring that blessing through a family. And as that family deals with Belarus, as that family deals with Nigeria, as that family deals with Black Lives Matter, as that family deals with COVID-19, as that family deals with an election in two weeks that makes a whole lot of people nervous, as that family steps into the voting booth, 
They step in as a family that says, how do we help the useless become useful? How do we make sure that the old are welcomed in as part of the family? How do we make sure that as part of this family, those who would be pushed to the side because they don't quite fit the culture's picture of leadership, how do they get brought in? How do those who have actually broken the family become part of that family? How does the alien and the foreigner and the stranger, how are they brought in? And it asks all those questions in all these different places because it says as a family, for all the things that we are and all the mess that we are, we are a family that brings blessing to the world but with one significant difference. We don't have David as king. We have Jesus as king who demonstrates how we live as a family together by being the lamb that was slain. So as you look into this coming week, how do you imagine that you could help grow the family of God? Who could you invite to the table? How could you bring hope to those who are outside the family. We've been talking a lot about table. And one of the wonderful things is that God, to strengthen us for this journey ahead, invites us to his table, to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. And right now, we are going to turn our attention to that table, both as it unites us to one another, but also unites us to all the benefits of Christ.